going to read from Holy Scripture this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, chapter you're pretty familiar with since we had recently been preaching from that passage. We read it now in the service of the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism on faith. This is the great passage that teaches us not only the benefits of faith, that faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, making so making peace, and that he might reconcile unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh, for through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. This morning we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 7. Are all men then as they perished in Adam saved by Christ? No. Only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. What is true faith? True faith 
is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. What is then necessary for a Christian to believe? All things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. And then it asks, what are these articles? And that what follows is the Apostles' Creed that we will recite this evening. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, our catechism, and indeed all of the Reformed faith on the basis of Scripture, teaches us that the importance, even the necessity of faith, is that it is the instrument that unites us to Jesus Christ and keeps us in union with Him. And that through that instrument, we receive all of our salvation. That this is important and necessary is evident when you consider an analogy or a picture of that union and do so in the light of the biblical truth found in the book of Ephesians itself, that Christ is the head and we are the body, that there is a union between the body and the individual members of the body and Christ himself. And that union is through faith, or even faith itself. Consider then your own head and your own body and the union of the two and how if you were to destroy the body or wanted to destroy the body, where you would attack and how easily it would be to destroy the body in its connection to the head. One need only sever the neck. One need only take his hands and put it around the throat so that the individual no longer could take in air through the head, sever the spinal cord, stop the blood flow that's coursing from heart to head. In seconds, you can kill a person by simply severing or interrupting the connection between head and body. Such is the importance and necessity of faith. All of our life, all of our blessedness, all that we do, all that we are, comes through and is due to that connection. The devil also knows the importance of faith, perhaps understands it much better than we do. Therefore, in the history of the church, has attacked specifically at that point and attacked repeatedly. Oh yes, he attacks the body and various members in different ways, He's gone at the church all kinds of different ways, but you must see that fundamentally almost every attack, every attempt to destroy the church, which the Belgic Confession says is his one great desire to destroy the church and its members, he does by attacking faith. 
Even the great doctrinal controversies of the early church in the early centuries of its history, controversies over the nature of the Trinity, controversies over the person and nature of Christ, natures of Christ, were essentially attacks on faith because those are fundamental content of faith, as the Catechism makes clear when it says what is it necessary to believe. And among the beliefs of faith are matters pertaining to the Trinity and Christ Himself. Time would fail me to make all the connections, but you may also consider that the devil has attacked faith also, not only by creating doubt and undermining what faith actually believes, but what faith itself is. The Catechism teaches precisely what faith is and what it does, and you will find that many, many errors that have been found in the church or introduced into the church in one way or another change or deny what faith is. Faith, indeed, some say, is believing or it is trusting. But there is a rejection of faith as an engrafting. That faith has nothing to do with being united to Christ, being in Him. Or faith is trust and confidence, but not knowledge. Knowledge of faith. What faith actually knows is unimportant, if not irrelevant. Or to deny that assurance itself is faith. Or to put it another way, faith is assurance. Instead, some say faith tries to obtain assurance. Faith is not assurance itself, but works at obtaining it. You may see all those as attempts of the devil to sever the church and its members from Christ by attacking that union of faith itself. The importance of faith is brought out by the Catechism itself in its opening question when it asks, Are all men, then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? And the answer, in summary, is no. Only those who have faith are saved. We're going to consider this Lord's Day Basically, under the theme incorporated into that question, the perished saved by Christ. The perished saved by Christ. And we're going to look first of all at their identity. Who are the perished saved through faith by Christ? Then next, their faith. The faith itself by which they are saved. And then lastly, their gift their gift. What is it exactly that's given? That first question and answer, beloved people of God, is very, very important. And our fathers, by that question, are responding to and therefore condemning the error known as universalism and are condemning all forms of universalism. Now, universalism, considered broadly, is the false teaching, indeed the heresy, that all who perish in Adam are saved by Christ. They are saved in one way or another. They are saved either in this life or 
in a future life. That's universalism broadly considered. But there are different forms of it. There is the form of universalism that says it is God's intention, it is God's delight, it is God's will to save all who perished in Adam. But whether or not one is saved is dependent upon the individual himself, upon a choice made by their free will. Thus denying, I hope you see, the reality that one is saved by faith. There is also the form of universalism that might admit that not all are actually saved, but God loves all men, and Christ died for all men. And although they might admit that some of the worst of human beings indeed are not saved, almost always that view leads to outright full-blown universalism itself. Because one, one needs to reckon with the love of God. One needs to reckon with the reality of God's love and its strength, which is to actually save the object of God's love, which is why under such a scheme often one is said to be saved eventually in the life hereafter in one form or another. Now, not going to spend my time getting into all those heresies, but refuting them. According to the Heidelberg Catechism, the answer is no. When one looks at the false teachings of universalism and its various forms, you can break the error down into two basic errors, two basic errors that supposedly are based on Scripture itself. Even a heretic understands that his teachings, his false teachings, must have some basis in Scripture, some semblance of the truth. And you could take all those teachings and break it down into two basic categories. The first group teaches a form of universalism because it teaches that everyone who died in Adam is indeed saved by Christ or in Christ. There is a universal salvation because indeed all who perished in Adam are saved by Christ. And they point to a number of texts which we will face. Romans 5 verse 18 is an example. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, that's Adam, speaking about condemnation in Adam, even so by the righteousness of one, that's Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. See? There it is. Scriptures teach that even as all are condemned in Adam, so, so, by the free gift of one, righteousness came upon all men. Another example is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. See? There it is. How do we respond to that? And the answer of the Reformed faith, united on this, is that all, in Romans 5.18... 
refers to everyone represented by those two men, those two persons. Romans 5 is teaching that Adam is the legal representative of individuals and also so is Christ. Christ is the legal head and representative of individuals. And the all there refers to those whom Adam represents as their head and also those who then are represented by Christ. And those two groups are not the same. Also, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, this one is even easier to address. Paul explicitly identifies who the all are. In verse 18 of that chapter, he identifies those all as all who fall asleep in Christ. That is, are believers when they die. And in verse 22, identifies them as they who are Christ's at His coming. Verse 25 of that chapter says that Christ will subdue all His enemies. And if all are actually saved by Christ and belong to Christ, as is the interpretation given, Christ would have no enemies to subdue. There is a second group of texts that teaches universalism based on the fact that God loves all men. The argument is God saves all men because God loves all men. Again, we pick two texts as representative. The first is 1 John 2, verse 2, where we read, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then 1 Timothy 2, verses 4 through 6, we read that God will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Our response to this in the first place is that, number one, the word all in Scripture rarely refers to every individual head for head. This is not only a feature of the English language, but even the languages of Scripture. It is a feature of human speech that the word all rarely, rarely refers to all individuals head for head, but that's true of Scripture. Let me give you some examples. In Mark 1, verse 5, we read, There went out unto John all the land of Judea, and were all baptized. But in that same Scripture, we read that the Pharisees and Sadducees refused the baptism of John. Or, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 16, we read that all men forsook Paul. But we also read of many who did not, such as Timothy and Titus. Or in Revelation 19, verse 18, we read that the church shall eat a grisly dinner of all men. But if that were true, that it's all men head for head, then the church would be turning on itself. The word all is used importantly, however, in Scripture to refer the reality that we read in Ephesians 2, which is that Jesus is a universal Savior in the sense that those whom He saves comes from all nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples of the earth, and no longer is salvation 
restricted to the Jews or the physical descendants of Abraham as it was mainly in the Old Testament. That's the great, great gospel that comes in the New Testament. Exactly through the rejection of Christ by His own people, the gospel now comes to all men. Besides, if that weren't enough, there are plenty of other Scriptures that refute that interpretation that all men is everyone individually head for head by teaching that salvation and the love of God is definite and limited. And here, I cite texts that are in the very texts that they cite or within eyesight of them. For example... John 1, that they quote in verse 16, we read only a few verses after those they quote, Many antichrists have come, and they went out from us, but were not of us. Hard to see how that can be true when the all earlier is interpreted as all men head for head. Or in 1 Timothy 4, Verse 1, just a chapter or two after the text about all men, we read in latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That text seems to be ignored. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches that the only proper objects of salvation are those who are united to Jesus Christ and united to Him by an engrafting. Now, here we might recognize an important teaching of Scripture that there are two ways that the Scripture speaks of being engrafted into Christ. One, as it pertains to the counsel of God in eternity, and then secondly, as that counsel is worked out in time, in reality. And we need to do justice to the former. When the Catechism speaks that those who are saved by Christ are only those who are engrafted into Him by faith, you must look back also into time or into eternity, because it's eternity that explains who it is that will be engrafted into Christ in time. So we are chosen into Christ. Whenever you read about election, whenever you read about election, even in the passage we read, when you read about being chosen, most frequently it speaks about being chosen into or in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 4 is representative. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Or John 15 verse 16. I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. That then follows into the confessions. So we have for example, in the Belgic Confession, Article 16, He delivers and preserves from perdition all whom He in His eternal and unchangeable counsel hath elected in Christ our Lord. Canons likewise always refer to us being chosen in Christ. Not only does that teach that Christ is chosen first, you cannot be chosen into Christ or to belong to Christ unless God has first chosen Christ Himself. That all by itself is worthy of great attention. That in the counsel of God, His eternal counsel, Christ was first, not even us. The idea of our salvation is not that God had no thought of Christ until we fell. That God considered our fall and then chose us into Christ. 
No, God chose Christ first and then chose us to be redeemed from our perished position into Him. Interesting, too, that that right self destroys universalism. And often the same texts that teach election also make that clear. For example, in Ephesians 2 that we read, verses 2 and 3, it contrasts those chosen in Christ with others whom they were like, called children of disobedience. Notice that contrast there in Ephesians 2 that we read between those chosen in Christ who were like others, just like themselves, who were not so chosen in Christ. Those whom He calls the children of wrath. Same thing in John 15. If you go to John 15 that I've quoted, verse 19 you read, God has chosen some out of the world, which is why the world hates them. There's a world that hates those chosen into Christ. But then there is our engrafting into Christ in time. Whatever God determines to do in eternity, He does do and must do in time. And that's the main reference of the Heidelberg Catechism here in Lord's Day 7, as is evident when it says we are engrafted by faith. By faith. It's not talking, therefore, then, about our being chosen into Christ as such, but what occurs in time. What we read in 1 Corinthians 6.17, but he that is joined, the idea there is fastened, connected together, unto the Lord is one spirit. Or John 15, verse 2. John 15, we've been quoting, talks about the branches that are in Christ. So we read in the Belgian Confession, Article 22, Faith is an instrument with which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. It's an instrument that keeps us in communion with Him in all His benefits, which, when become ours, are more than sufficient to acquit us of our sins. Scriptures also teach that not every individual human being is in Christ or engrafted into Him. Jesus says in John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And John 15, verse 6, speaks of branches that are burned. This has something to say then about faith. Faith, as you all know, is a word that's associated with verbs. It's used verbally. We all know that faith is essentially synonymous with believing, or even what the Catechism calls knowing and assurance, or we might say trusting. Those are all verbs and can be used in a verbal form. But the fact that the Catechism says and speaks of those who are engrafted into Christ by faith teaches a very important truth, that is, faith is a thing. Faith is essentially an instrument, a thing, a noun. That's how it's presented in all of our creeds, as an instrument, as something that connects us to Christ. Like a pipeline connects your water faucet to a water reservoir through which water comes. Or your electrical lines that connect your vacuum cleaner to a power plant far away. That's the idea of faith. 
Faith is an instrument that connects us to Christ and through which instrument every single benefit and blessing of salvation is received. Faith receives. Faith receives only what is in Christ. And everything necessary for salvation comes through that faith. The term engrafting also importantly teaches us about the nature of that instrument. Very important that when it comes to faith and this union with Christ, it is always referred to in organic terms. Terms used aren't mechanical. They're not the kind of union that we might know when you glue two blocks of wood together. That's a union too. But the terms used for the union of us with Christ aren't like that. And the pictures aren't like that. It's not a mechanical union whereby parts of an engine are bolted together so that you have one engine. No, simply look at the pictures. The pictures as we've been noting in the book of Ephesians. That of a husband who is joined to his wife as one flesh. Even, there's, even though there's two individuals in that marriage, they are joined together in such a way that man cannot put asunder. Or the body and the head. What's striking also in the book of Ephesians is even when a non-organic picture is given, namely that of a building or a church, the Scriptures speak about our union to Christ in terms of a church being built upon Christ the cornerstone. That the Scriptures refer even to that as living. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, Peter says. And the same kind of references are made in the book of Ephesians. That's important. It's important to recognize that faith is a living union. How do we know? It's an engrafting. Look at the picture. Simply look at the main picture of the union. An engrafting. Whereby a farmer takes a rootstock that's living. And then he takes a branch. A branch that cannot live on its own because it's cut off from a source. And he makes a slit in that rootstock, sticks the branch in there, winds it together, and the life from that rootstock grows into the branch so that that branch then lives and bears fruit. That's the picture. That's the picture of salvation. That's the picture of the importance of faith. What teaches us then? A couple of things. Number one, you cannot initiate nor are you responsible for faith. You do not obtain faith by an act of your own free will. Oh, when faith believes, indeed your will is involved. But you can no, long, you can no more obtain faith. You no more can engraft yourself into Christ than a branch can engraft itself into a tree. No, it's something the farmer must do. It's something the husbandman must do with regard to fines. So it teaches us that faith as an engrafting, though faith is active, is something that God gives to us. He does to us. That's in one sense why we speak of faith as a gift. So much is that true that the canons had 3-4, Article 14, when referring to faith as a gift, 
explains very carefully what that means. That faith isn't even given in this sense, that God holds it out, and then it's up to you to take it. That it's up to you to receive it. But says, no, 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 no. When we say faith is a gift, we mean God actually infuses it. Uses the word even breathes. Breathes it into us. God gives us faith. And He gives it as an implanting. But the fact that it's a living union also makes clear that faith is living. That's why the Scriptures speak of a living faith. The creeds speak of a true and living faith. And why a dead faith is no faith. That's why Christ could even speak of branches in the tree that are cut off. They're dead. There's no life flowing through whatever connection is there. And whatever connection is there is not faith. Faith is an engrafting whereby the life of Christ flows into you and flows into me. And it grows. It's a living thing. So, like all living things, it grows. We can grow in our faith. Even as a branch grows into the tree. Well, then it shouldn't surprise us then that faith is active because living things are active. They're productive. They produce fruit. There's a life that flows through and the life can be described. Now, when you look at faith from that perspective, looking at the instrument itself and the life of the instrument, the Catechism uses two words. It's two things. Knowing or knowledge and assurance or confidence or we may say trust. The Bible uses different terms. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding. That's what faith is. It's not that faith knows. <laughs> it, it does. You, you could speak that way. But faith itself is knowing. When you look at the object, true faith is a certain knowledge. Notice a certain knowledge. It's not just any kind of knowledge. It's not what I think I ought to know, or what I think is important, but a certain knowledge could take that to be specific knowledge or a confident knowledge. doesn't really matter what. They're both true. Whereby I hold for truth. Notice that word, hold. To grasp. To cling to. Not just merely to accept or say intellectually, well, that's true. But it's, I hold for truth. This is truth. I hold this as truth. This is truth and nothing but the truth. All that God has revealed in His Word. That's faith. If you have someone who doesn't believe all that God reveals in His Word, they don't have faith. That's not faith. Faith does not and cannot look at the Scriptures and say, uh, well, that don't make sense. Or that goes contrary to my experience. That goes contrary to scientific exploration. That, that can't be true. No. Faith, according to Hebrews 11, believes that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. They weren't framed by evolutionary processes. They were framed by the Word of God. Faith, the faith of Abraham, believed God's promise. God's promise to the point where when God said, kill your son Isaac, Abraham was willing to do that, believing, knowing, understanding that God could raise him and indeed would raise him from the dead. Do you believe? Do you know? Do you hold for truth all that God has revealed in His Word. That's faith. 
That's what it is. The content of that faith is the Word of God. That's the content of that faith. And faith is the knowing, the knowledge of it. Do you doubt God's Word? Do you find that when God's Word is read or you're reading God's Word, you find yourself objecting or changing or minimizing or reinterpreting God's Word? It doesn't matter what reason you give for doing that. That's unbelief. That's not faith. Faith. Faith is that which holds for truth all that God has revealed in His Word. It's also confidence, trust, assurance. Notice again, assurance and trust and confidence aren't some third thing, some other thing beyond faith, but it is what faith itself is. Now again, specifically, what are we assured of? What do we trust in? What's our confidence? And you will notice that again, it's the Word. It's what's revealed in the Word written. And what's revealed in the Word written is the Word incarnate. What faith is assured of, what faith is confident in, is Christ Himself, that Word. It knows the Word and trusts the Word. And specifically now, to do what? Or about what? And here, you will see the personal character of faith. Faith is something that you believe, that you know, and that you are assured of. Faith is always personal. And the Catechism brings it out when it doesn't allow us even to say that faith is the confidence that the remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given of God, merely of grace, for Christ's sake. Now that's true. And notice that. Faith believes all those basics of the Holy Gospel. That all of salvation is given by grace, merely of Christ's sake. Faith believes, I didn't obtain it. I didn't get it for myself. I don't save myself. And what I do, even... My faith itself doesn't contribute to that. Anything beyond that, anything other than that, that's not faith again. That's unbelief. But notice that faith says that's not just for others, but for me also. Someone that says, oh yeah, I believe Jesus paid for sins. There's remission of sins and everlasting life in Christ. But I doubt whether it's for me, that's unbelief again. Faith is absolutely certain, absolutely assured that those things are given to me. And notice, again, given to me, not for my sake. That's amazing. Not even really for my sake as an elect child of God as such. But for Christ's sake, always for Christ's sake. When we look elsewhere for these things, when we find ourselves trusting in other things, again, that's not faith. Now lastly, I wanted to bring your attention the gift part of that, their gift. And what I want to point out is again, it's the Reformed faith, that faith itself is a gift, and that's the emphasis of the Reformed faith, because that makes clear it teaches without a shadow of a doubt that everything received through faith and even everything that faith does is also a gift. You see, if faith itself is a gift, and there ought to be no doubt about that, that's Ephesians 2, by grace are ye saved through faith, and it is the gift of God, and then I explained what that meant even according to the Reformed faith. But if you look at the Canons 3-4, they say, rightly, that even the act and the will of believing, notice that, and that article, important article of the Canons, that faith is a gift 
in the sense that both the will to believe, that means the will believes, the will is involved, we don't object to that, and the act of believing. Believing is an act. That too is the gift of God. Why is that? Because of the instrument's a gift, everything that the instrument is, and it's knowing and assurance. That too is the gift of God. But then it also means everything received through it is the gift of God. Everything that comes through that instrument, everything that's received is a gift of God. It must be a gift of God. Even the knowledge of things. It's amazing. God elects us before we know it. And then we become aware of it. We learn of it. Faith believes it. Faith says, I know I'm an elect child of God. That's a gift. That's a gift God gives. Now, what I want to do is point us in the direction that that gift is one. There is essentially one gift that comes, and that gift is Christ Himself. And that gift is received, and that it's through faith that we receive the Spirit of Christ. Now that's not admittedly explicit here. The Catechism is going to make that explicit. Notice it says only here that faith is a knowledge and assurance which the Holy Ghost works. Which the Holy Ghost works. Now, if faith is confidence that the Holy Spirit works, then it's the Holy Ghost that is responsible for all this. That it's the Holy Ghost who not only works it, but is the gift. The gift received. The gift received through faith. And in receiving that Spirit, we receive Christ Himself. That's the wonder of faith. That through faith, we are in Christ. And Christ is in us. A living, powerful, mighty union. You explain, and you ask yourself, what explains it? What's it all about? And the answer is, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the reception of the Holy Spirit. It's the implanting of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ. and Uniting us in such a way that we know Him and are assured that we are in Him. That's faith. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the gift of faith. For the gift of the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, whereby we know Him and are assured of Him in His salvation. And that through that great gift of faith, we receive every blessing of salvation and every blessedness of Thy eternal good pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.